Welcome to the JLA Cast, a podcast in which we revisit Grant Morrison's legendary run on JLA, arguably the greatest superhero comic ever written, one issue at a time. My name's John, and I'm the writer and creator of Afterlife Inc. And I'm PJ, and I am the writer of the graphic novel adaptation of Steve Jackson's The Trolltooth Wars. You know, PJ, I had a real moment of crisis about halfway through that intro, where I knew the words... I knew who I was. I had all the information in front of me, and yet I somehow very nearly uh, lost my lost my thread and just completely unravelled live on air. That's weird because for a brief moment I forgot what I was the writer of. So. <laughs> <laughs> is this just is this just like the natural outcome? You know, is is this what it's come to? Like you know, after so many half a year, pretty much of of lockdown and and strangeness, and have our brains just finally turned to jelly i mean my mine was pretty much a mush anyway it's just this is just natural progression i think of, of that yeah like it's the senility setting in it's either that or because it's a bank holiday i'm treating myself to doing a load of diy Ooh. which is like <laughs> oh like oh pj i cannot begin to tell you i mean like look the adventures of superman and friends you know that's you know, thrilling, admittedly, but that is that is as nothing compared to the joy of making the bathroom door shut properly. Is that is genuine question here? Are you one of those people who actually does enjoy doing DIY, or is it like writing, where you don't like the writing but you like having written, so you like having uh, done oh, the DIY? Oh yeah, no, yeah, no. It's a good point, PJ, because I, I don't massively enjoy the process of writing. I like, no. I like when you've got something nice at the end of it. Yeah, um, but no, I th- I think actually I think the two are inversely related because. I'm I'm getting to a point now where I would almost rather spend time with a power drill than than forcing myself to be creative, um, <laughs> which I'm sure bogues well in the long run. But no, I do I do enjoy I do enjoy DIY. I unironically bought a chisel yesterday, and it made me incredibly happy. See, I'm, I I don't I do not enjoy it, and I am not good at it to the point where um, my wife she is quite quite good at uh, she's, uh, she's quite the handy woman um but she actively makes me stay away from things when she's doing it because i, I will usually ruin it if i try and help <laughs> well you must have I'm, I'm sure this is this is what good relationships are based on though you must have there must be like a, a, a an ultimate skill that that you exceed at you know that oh i'm be. i'm the cook i ah, do all the cooking in the go. relationship there we go that's it like Lucy, uh, Lucy is um, an absolute wonder with um, fabric and uh, the garden. She's got quite a green thumb, you know. She mm-hmm. can uh, she can name plants where to me it's just plant. 
I mean, I can pretty, I can tell the difference between like grass and a tree. I would hope much. so. <laughs> you know, after after years of trial and error. Um, but no, I do I do very much uh, enjoy the DIYing to the point the point being actually that the house is currently full of the fumes of paint and uh, a nice bottle of white spirits, which I've got kind of breathing uh, for later, and um, and a quick drying polyfiller. So that might be why I'm a little scatterbrained because I'm I'm tripping the light fantastic on um, B and Q's very best aerosols right now. Have you got a window open? Uh, no, but the purple hippo next to me tells me I don't need to worry about it. Oh, and he's very trustworthy. That's oh. fine then. It's well, he is a professor, PJ. <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't be wearing that hat otherwise. <laughs> Wait, what hat? Is it one of those mortarboards? Is this the Beano? Do you think all professors wear mortarboards? <laughs> look, look. Look me, look me in straight in the virtual eye as we record this by audio only, and tell me that if you were a professor, you wouldn't wear a mortarboard all the time. I wouldn't. I didn't enjoy wearing it when I graduated <laughs> from university. I took that thing off as soon as I could. At what point, though, does it become a status symbol? I think when you become a Beano character, that's when, it. When you become a Beano character, yeah. I, I, feel, I do wonder if life would be a lot easier if every profession had a very, a very clearly. You know, had a hat. Had a hat, basically. <laughs> I do feel that comic book writer would be some kind of um, like Dunks's cap kind of thing. <laughs> so the entire world would know to like just pelt them with rotten fruit. And uh, I miss the days when journalists had uh, those those hats with with press, a little cardboard bit saying "press" stuck in yeah. the, uh, the the band. The thing is, I've got quite a fat head. And I, I do feel that in the kingdom of the hatted man, I would, I would, I, that's like a Twilight Zone episode. I'd be, I'd be the outsider. They'd know I, they'd know I didn't belong. I just, I don't really enjoy wearing hats. I don't know why. I just, they, they bother me. And it's one every few years. I, I think maybe I'll try wearing a hat again, and and then I, I don't like it. No, no, I, yeah. About a couple of years ago, I said to myself, "I'm going to really try it. I'm going to I'm going to try and wear a hat." And I actually I I went uh, to a a special online emporium for the larger headed gentleman, <laughs> and I bought a kind of like waterproof flat cap thing, which I think came in extra large, uh, and uh, it's still a little bit of a tight fit. I'll be on, I'll be honest with you. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that phase just came and went. I think it was like yo-yos when you were young, you know, yo-yos or top trumps or um, pogs. Like it was just a fad. I got over it. Oh, pogs! I pogs. pogs. I remember pogs. Did you have um? Wasn't that like a really weird name for the um, the heavy pog which you were meant to throw at the others? The plastic one. The, yeah. It, it was uh in pogs. It was called a keeny. Hmm. Why was that, do you suppose? Um, I believe, and I might be remembering this wrong, but I believe it's because um, Pogs were based on an old game from, I want to say either like New Zealand or South America, something that's uh, somewhere. Because the word Pog was the initials of three different fruits from yeah, was it like the area. Pom- pomegranate, orange grapefruit or something like that something like that yeah but i believe the um because it was based on this old game akini was uh, uh 
a word from it sounds like it's from those dialects doesn't it yeah like it, yeah it just sounds yeah but wasn't it something like they the original cardboard discs were from the fruit juice bottles Am I yeah, they that? were they were the, they were the caps, uh, and people would collect them, and they they do different designs on them. But when this started happening, and then I think I think that's how that game started. Yeah. Do you do you suppose what what, what do you reckon the likelihood is, PJ? If you, if you cast your mind back to the early nineties, <laughs> yeah, yay or nay, do you believe there was a there were DC branded pogs? There must have been. I didn't. I mean, have right? Any. Yeah. I didn't have any, but there must have been. Hmm. I, I did it, have uh, biker mice from Mars ones. Did you? Re- oh man! <laughs> I was going to say for a minute that I had, I had Warner Brothers cartoons, Pogs, but of course that's a trick. That's a trick question which I've just asked and answered because those were Tazos, weren't they? They were the yes. um, arguably, arguably a superior form of playground disc because they could slot together. And then they released the Star Wars ones and i actually had a a special folder to put those in that you could buy where they finish a picture by putting the the, the like tazos in there and it was a weird time it was a hell of a time to be alive i mean we were i do feel the 90s was like this bizarre this bizarre moment of like naive optimism yeah. where i think particularly if you lived in a western culture it really did feel like things were as good as they were ever gonna get and like, uh, you know, we didn't know anything. We were ignorant as hell about the rest of the world. And we just thought that like, oh, this is great. It'll just carry on forever. <laughs> and then things just got worse from there. So, yeah. You know. Yeah. And this isn't, and you know, this isn't like us having like rose tinted goggles and going like, oh yeah, everything was better when we were young. Like, I think it's more just, we knew a lot less. Yeah. Like, and then we got wise. And, you know, like with the rise of like image comics back in the nineties, when, there was this boom and suddenly they were printing like million a million different variants of every of every issue one. Cause it was the um oh what do you call it? Like the speculators market. Like comics oh, were gonna yeah. be comics were gonna be an investment for your grandchildren. Yep. Because because people were buying so many, they printed so many that all of those comics you saved are now worthless. Well done you. I mean that's basic economics, right? Yeah. Like, you know, I think even 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 young young John could have probably worked that out. <laughs> I've had a I've just had a vivid and very strange memory of a when Batman and Robin came out and I seem to recall I don't know where I got it it may have been like with a promotional magazine or something but there were collectible kind of like pogs and kind of a bit like what you were describing with those Star Wars pogs or whatever where like yeah if you if you slotted them into a bigger thing, they kind of made a picture. But they were all vaguely... They weren't pog-shaped. They were like oblong. Uh, they were a bit, I guess, a bit like the bat signal in oh, okay. kind of like shape. And they were all thicker than pogs. <clears throat> and I remember you were... I think I, I only ever got the board because it came with like this cardboard oblong with little holes in it and i think you were meant to like collect all collect all your favorite characters from batman and robin like bane and (laughs) the worst version of bane ever oh oh it's number 34 it's alfred on his on his deathbed because he's got um wilfred syndrome or something like that yeah um 
And I, I think I think that may have been a turning point in my adolescent development because I distinctly remember making a choice not to <laughs> not to collect those. That's I was good, done. They, they, you know, you'd have to pay someone to take them off you these days, I think, with the, the legacy of that film. God, can you imagine? I mean, what an era. It was basically Batman or nothing when it came. Batman, meh, Batman, the cartoon played in the UK. You had the Superman cartoon as well, a little bit. Yeah, when, did that, had that started when Batman and Robin came out? I'm not sure. It's hard to say, isn't it? Because maybe it was, maybe, oh God, I don't know. It was so weird because really like as a as a kid growing up in the UK it was basically like X-Men Spider-Man or nothing I mean you I guess you may have cared a little bit about the Hulk or well you did have the um the Marvel Action Hour the Marvel the Action Hour Iron Man Hulk and Fantastic 4 it was the old 80s Hulk cartoon and then newer cartoons of Iron Man and Fantastic 4 that weren't weren't great let's be honest those I ones. yeah I I used to I used to really really like the Iron Man and Fantastic Four cartoons, but at the same time, I I really do not feel they would age well. Like if I went if I went back to them now, I think they both got because they had two seasons each, and I think they both got better in the second season. They both got new theme tunes, new writers, new animation, um, so they looked a little bit better. They they were less because certainly the Iron Man cartoon was very much uh, in season one a generic Saturday morning cartoon where every episode it was. The Mandarin and his team against Iron Man and his team. It was just who were basically force works, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. It was just like Defenders of the Earth or Mask, where it was the same villain every week and the same basic plot every week. But then the second season changed it up, and it became more of an Iron Man solo show. Uh, with unless I unless I'm unless I'm kind of getting this wrong in my head, wasn't War Machine like oddly purple? in the cartoon like he wasn't black and white he was like in the perfect. second in the second season when they changed the animation yes he was the the shades they chose for darker colors all had a hint of like even tony stark's hair which was long in the second season of the cartoon for no reason um oh pj had sort of shades of purple to it there was a reason pj like let's be honest it's because it was beautiful oh okay yeah <laughs> i mean i i can't disagree with that yeah <laughs> I mean, God, what an era! Like, when oddly enough, when I, when I when I think of like most '90s comics, there was probably always a scene where there was a guy in a in a suit, like some overmuscled guy in a business suit with really long hair, <laughs> you know, like, and he'd be like the CEO, and he'd be, he'd be called something like uh, he'd be like CEO of uh, like Intense Industries or. or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thrust incorporated, you know, and he and he'd be a villain or something like that. Like I just feel like God, who was the real world person who was inspiring all these like long where did it come from, this long nineties hair? I have no idea, actually. That's a really good question. Listeners, do, where do, we can do trace some research. <laughs> was with hero with heroes, does that start with Superman? Death of Superman, Return of Superman is where he comes back with the mullet. Oh, so, and there's, but there's there's kind of like a story reason for that. It's because he's he's been reborn, hasn't he? Yeah, he's he's sort of in this. When he comes back, he's in this pod, basically to to heal. But he's in there for long enough that his hair grows. Um, it's a question for you because I, I 
I, I, I confess I haven't actually read The Death of Superman. What? I know, I know. I it's Oh, on... this is no, this is a good thing. This is something we're going to have to visit together at some point then. Yep, right. Okay. <laughs> so so when he cuz I I know I know enough about it. Like he di- he dies at the hands of Doomsday. Yeah. In what was a bit like Nightfall, a, a bit of um a bit of a stunt story from like the 90s. Like that it was more of like a is Superman really relevant anymore? We're going to do something a bit shocking to try and get some publicity. That's what it became, but that's not where the original, the initial idea came from. Um, oh, they had a, a a writers' summit for Superman. They have it every year where the writers of the four books, because Superman was weekly effectively. Because you had Action Comics, you had Superman, you had Man of Steel, uh, and I want to say Adventures of Superman um, or man of tomorrow i forget which one it was but because you had the four books and it was every week they'd have a summit every year where the writers would get together and say right what are we going to do this year and <laughs> they were getting really tired of it and one and so every year as a joke they go hey why don't we just kill him and then this year they were like why don't we just kill him and someone else went yeah let's kill him and that's where the initial idea and then it does become a comment on is he still relevant in this day and age and everything after that but yeah it just started as a little i'm really tired of it should we just kill him well, who who put him in the pod then that brought him back to life? The Eradicator. Right. Okay. And is the Eradicator... Now, this is very inside baseball. I've got... Well, actually, come to think of it. Our podcast is called the JLA Cast. I do hope that the people listening care about this. <laughs> um, was the Eradicator a Kryptonian robot? It wasn't... It's... it's um, Okay. It wasn't a robot. It was a device uh, that... Um, was created to help keep Krypton pure. Effectively, it's a sentient computer, and at one point, it takes takes Superman over um, and turns him into a pure Kryptonian. I think we talked about that on the last episode. Yeah. Um, but then later on, I cannot cannot remember how, but it creates its own body. Um, do you know what? I think I have a vague memory, and this is another reason I want us now to suddenly revisit Death of Superman. <laughs> we at might some have point. to, yeah. Um, but I believe it takes matter from Superman's coffin and turns it into a body that resembles Superman. Because, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is because after the death of Superman, you have like the the reign of the four Supermen sort of thing, yes. don't you? So you yep. have Steel, Superboy, yep. uh, the Eradicator and the Cyborg Superman. Right. Okay. Yes. Got that. Got that. Right. Okay. And the Eradicator, it, it didn't. Weren't its powers more kind of like energy based rather than just being big, strong? Or am I dreaming? No, you're you're right. It do, he does have um, the flight and the super strength, but he doesn't have any of Superman's vision powers, and his eyes are really sensitive to light, so that's why the character had to wear the sunglasses oh, right, all okay. the time. But he could fire energy blasts from his hands. And with the cyborg Superman, who is Hal Hankshaw or something like that? Like, Hank Henshaw. Hank... <laughs> right. Shire Hal Hank is, <laughs> is the cyborg Superman. And... He was a villain, was he not? Yeah. Yeah, so where, did he try to be good? No. After that? No, okay, right. No. Okay. That was uh, that was a plot. I see. I Okay, right, well, we'll, we'll save that for another day then. But no, because he <laughs> is like... 
he because he's a robot obviously but does he have all of does he have superman's powers as well or is he just like kind of like a big strong robot he's a robot who uses his technology to simulate superman's powers right and does he have a kryptonite heart or is that that's metallo metallo yep 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 okay this is good we're learning pj or i'm learning (laughs) you're all you're you're always teaching me (laughs) yeah but no we're probably gonna have to do that aren't we like properly well look jla cast we we can only go so far with grant morrison's run because at some point it um you know ends so we're gonna have to cover more things after that and i think the the death and return of superman is one of those things we should look at i've got to say like one of the one of the quite you know interesting like little side tangents of this podcast so far has been because again pj you're the i feel you're the living encyclopedia of this of this era to a point Uh, to a point to a point (laughs) well it's, it's it's a further point than me and I'm finding it very interesting, like personally, to to learn a bit more about the wider DC universe of the time and what kind of came before or, you know, what the world that this JLA series inherited, really. And learning a bit more about Superman and where he was at the time. That's, yeah, that's particularly interesting to me. Also, just a a small continuity point on something you said earlier. Uh, Death of Superman actually happened before Nightfall. Um, two ways I know this. One is in I want to say ninety eight, ninety nine. They did a ten issue World's Finest miniseries, which was Superman and Batman meeting every year. So each issue was a different. This was when it was said they'd both been around ten years, and each one was a different meeting for each year. Mm-hmm. Year nine covered Nightfall and Death of Superman. So the fir- and it was divided into two stories. And the first story is Superman going to Gotham to meet Batman, and it's Azrael. And then the second half of the story is Batman coming to Metropolis to meet Superman, and it's Bruce meeting the four Supermen. Right. Um, the other reason I know that is because in Nightfall, you get a scene at the beginning where Robin is giving Jean-Paul Valley Azrael, a haircut, and Robin is wearing the black armband with the Superman symbol on it to show mourning and that Superman has recently died. Right. Right. Okay. So, c- c- crying out loud, God, it must have been an absolute nightmare. Even you know, even just in you know the present day, whenever that is, keeping you can track sum of the nineties up in you can sum the nineties up in four titles, really, can't you? Death of Superman, Nightfall, Clone Saga, Onslaught. There's the nineties for you. <laughs> you know, yeah, I was I was kind of like waiting. I was like, oh, where's he going? Where's he going with this? And I was like, oh yeah, yep, yep, yep. And weirdly, uh, yeah, I've, I've oddly enough, like the Onslaught Saga and the Clone saga a lot of sagas in the 90s um they were kind of like my gateway to marvel really me too actually yeah yeah which i don't think anyone would look back on and say that those were particularly particular high points but i found something in them i I still i still have a well this is probably just nostalgia but i do i do i do really carry a torch for some of the stuff that was going on in that era like it i don't know it's almost like it's almost like they were—they didn't quite realise what was coming around the corner, like that there was a big change coming. But you know what? Having having sort of reread both in the not too distant past, I can say Onslaught actually kind of holds up. I enjoyed reading Onslaught again. Mm. Um, the Clone Saga doesn't. It goes on way too long. Um, there's, I think, because the Clone Saga effectively is a lot of different individual smaller stories put together into one long narrative. Basically, Ben Riley beginning to end. Um, 
there are some good individual stories within it. Mm. Uh, like I would say The Lost Years is one of the great Spider-Man stories and it, you can't have that if you don't have the uh, the Clone Saga. But um, overall, yeah, the Clone Saga does not work. Well, here's, a, here's an interesting thing as well because it's interesting that I, as, as we have discussed, I think probably like in every, in every episode, probably about three times, um, the, the electric blue Superman outfit is is incredible like uh it's 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 probably the greatest superhero costume ever and i won't hear any 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 dissenting opinion um <laughs> at the same time i really like ben riley's spider-man costume now here's here's mm. my thing with it i mm. like it but i don't like it as much so the pl- classic peter parker is the best suit in my opinion but what i do love is the ben riley outfit on may Mayday Parker in the Spider Girl series. I think that worked really well. And that is a that's a future, isn't it? That's like a am I is Mayday Parker the daughter of Peter yeah, and Mary? Mary Jane? It was a series set in a what if? It, it, well, it started in an issue of What If. In fact, it was What If the daughter of Spider Man, basically, and it was her discovering her powers and I think fifteen years into the future. Um, and then she became Spider Girl, and the issue was so popular that it led to her getting her own series, which for a while was Marvel's longest-running continuous series featuring a female lead. Really? Um, yeah, I think it did get to did it get to a hundred or was it? It wasn't sure. It wasn't too far off. If it didn't, um, certainly into the eighties before it got cancelled. Um, and she still appears occasionally in like the Spider Verse crossovers and everything like that. Go on, uh, AC, you could do a whole separate podcast just trying to make sense of the number of spider women or girls there have been. Oh, oh my god. <laughs> like it is my god, like what a nightmare. Yep. Wasn't there um oh wasn't she called like um I'm gonna get this wrong, like uh, Aruna or something like that for a while? Wasn't there like a different Oh Arana. Arana, yeah. that was it, yeah. Um Yeah. Who is now I think in the comics she is now Spider Girl. Right. But using um, uh, Jessica Carpenter, the second Spider-Woman, uh, the black and white one who was in the Iron Man cartoon, her costume. Yes, yeah. No, I was a big... Um... Because she then became Madam Web. Did she? Oh, because oh, she... Original Madam Web died. Oh, because she was blinded, wasn't she? hmm Oh. I do, like... I, I, <laughs> I feel like... Um... The barrier to entry to our podcast is only getting higher. <laughs> like, <laughs> like all this arcane knowledge. Um, it was bizarre. Um, oh, PJ, we we should. Okay, that's another one for the spin-off pile. We'll have to do a, a Spider-Man, yeah. a Spider-Man uh, recap podcast. <laughs> um, but PJ, um, we really have to, you know, we really have to focus now. We have to get back on track. Um, Before we do get into this, though, I just do want to say to people, um, I might cough during the podcast. And uh, if so, it's because, um, well, I'm waiting for my test results from a COVID test. I might have it. If I've got it, it's very mild. Don't worry. I'm fine. John won't have to find a replacement presenter. But if you hear me coughing in the podcast, it's because John couldn't edit it out because of where it happened. And that's the reason. And I apologize. And also, I, I demand authenticity in all things. And I will not lie to our listeners about... PJ stands for Play Griddle Gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's something so... 
There's something so indecent about gentlemen with a J. I oh. know, I love it. <laughs> oh, I can see it in my head, and it oh, it, it just feels wrong. It's just, <laughs> oh man, that's like one of the forbidden words. There's like um, yeah, when you when you know when you when you become a, a writer, you know when you're a proper writer, and um, we've all been to the conferences, you know we've all we've all been to the mountain retreat, and they do warn you about the forbidden words, which um, the PJ, you know. PJ's under a lot of emotional stress right now, so we'll let him off for uttering gentleman with a J. I invoked it. He invoked it using the forbidden alphabet. <laughs> triple, triple U. Ugh. Gross. <laughs> um, but yeah, so... Oh, there we go. There we go. That's real. Um, but yeah, so PJ, um, we're back in the world of JLA. And um, should we do a quick catch-up as to what happened last episode? Oh, well, last episode, the key uh, captured the JLA, minus the Martian Manhunter, who's still recovering from his fight with Asmodel. Uh, and he's basically placed them all into virtual reality simulations. So uh, Superman is now the Green Lantern of Krypton. Um, Batman is old and not Batman anymore. Uh, Tim Drake is now Batman. And Bruce Wayne Jr. is Robin. But the joke has just reappeared there. And uh, Aquaman is in a post-apocalyptic flooded new york yeah aquaman is, aquaman is basically kevin costner yeah aquaman is Waterworld now <laughs> um which i'm fine with totally okay uh, with. <laughs> and wonder woman is uh well essentially she's she's tomb raider with uh, steve trevor but fighting nazi zombies yes and none of the league uh as far as we're aware have any well it's like they're, they're all immersed in these alternate worlds they're living these alternate lives they're living through. Yes, we don't know why the key has placed them in into these alternate realities yet. But at the same time, uh, Green Arrow has teleported up to the JLA's headquarters because he is about to join the League uh, and has started firing arrows at the key's robot servants. And uh, in in kind of being discovered, the the kind of robots have shot Green Arrow, kind of injuring his arm, and destroying, most importantly, his bow and arrows. So without any effective weaponry, he's had to resort to nicking his 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 dead father's trick arrows, his novelty arrows, from the JLA trophy room. We should say this green arrow is Connor Hawk, the son of Oliver Queen, the original green arrow, and he just uses pointy arrows. He doesn't use the trick arrows. So This, uh... this is the 90s, of course. So yeah, he was shooting people with... You know, painful arrows. Pointy arrows. Yeah, hijinks. Um, so yeah, um we therefore, I guess if we dive right into it, um Well let's 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 go with the cover again because uh, oh, this is yes. another one of those absolutely stunning covers, I think. Um <laughs> It's yeah. it's a beautiful image where you get the keys face in the background, just taking up the whole cover, and then in the foreground his giant hand holding a bunch of keys. But four of the keys are Wonder Woman, Superman, The Flash, and Batman. It's great, actually. And it, I've got to say, like, of all the things this series is known for, I wouldn't say the covers are are really up there. Like, they don't they don't get, like, a massive amount of um, attention. And I think towards the end of the series, they became a little more... Well, I don't want to say generic, but they weren't really, like, kind of standout-y sort of covers. Yeah. I'm ready to be proved wrong on that. But at this point in the series, these are really fun. Yeah, it's it's really it, it tells you a lot about the story without giving anything away. 
effectively. The the key is using the JLA as keys to something. Um, they are is, just yeah. generally quite dynamic images at this point. And I've, I've always loved a cover which is a bit more... It's less literal. It's just kind of like... It, it's more just like evoking a kind of daft idea. Yeah, less literal, but without lying to you. Oh, um, I like that. Because that, well, that happens, doesn't it? Like, I remember an issue of Spider-Man where the front cover was Spider-Man fighting Sabretooth and they never even met in the issue. <laughs> Do you reckon they just had, like, a random cool pin-up which the artist had done and they were like, well, oh, let's just stick this on there. Those two characters were in that issue, but it was Captain America that had a fight with Sabretooth, not Spider-Man. Right. Well, you got you got to reel them in, PJ. You know, I know. You got to you got to you got to do what you can to get them get them get them to read your book. Um, but yeah, Howard Porter, who of course isn't with us on interiors at the moment, is doing some great work on the covers. Yeah, yeah. must have all that all that kind of raw energy he's saved well, he's, up. Oh, and he is saving it for something very cool coming <laughs> very soon. Oh yes, yes. Now we know we've got the benefit of foresight, but oh, what what a time to be alive in. Mm. September 1997. As a young John rides rides the double decker bus to secondary school for the very first time. Uh, oh, bless him. <laughs> oh, bless him. Whereas PJ was one of the scary old kids who was probably smoking behind the bike sheds. Well, no, I was the the what 97 first year of GCSEs, um, and I was the nerdy kid who didn't have many friends. Oh, PJ. Yeah, I was right behind you, basically. <laughs> <laughs> but look at us now. Idols idols of millions. No, I don't want to play football. I want to watch Star Trek. And I don't smoke. At least, you know, I use opium. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> right. Um, okay, so I guess getting into the issue proper, um, we're just right into it. Right, we just, really are. Yeah, there's no setup. Um and the key is basically, uh, he's monologuing. Really, he's he's doing a good old villain. Let me tell you about my origin story. Which but it's okay because we know that from the last issue, that's a side effect of the drugs he's full of that it makes him talk to himself a lot. Yes. Now I've got to say, it's fine if you lampshade it. You know, you can get <laughs> you can get away with anything as long as you say it's because of drugs. Yeah. No way. Um, okay. No, that's fine. Uh, so the key is basically introducing the reader to himself because the key was a pretty obscure villain wasn't he yeah From like yeah the he was 60s or earlier i want to say uh, no it's the 60s i think i don't think he appeared before that <clears throat> um he did fight the original justice league certainly now did he fight now in which incarnation of the justice league are we talking about right is this, this like... is where it gets confusing so this this origin recap um Basically him saying, you know, it was always Justice League always win. They always win. Um, <clears throat> he recaps how his origin is basically doing experiments for intergang. So he took drugs to open the doors to the untapped areas of his brain. Um, and then you get a panel of the key. He's got Aquaman, but classic orange and green costume, short blonde hair, no beard, two hands Aquaman, being held captive by the key. In his goofy 60s costume. And it is one of the sillier examples of the era. Uh, and he's basically just holding a gun to Aquaman. <laughs> While Green Lantern, Hal Jordan, Martian Manhunter, The Flash, Barry Allen, who has his eyes closed for some reason, uh, and Black Canary, 
go after him. But of course, when the Justice League first came along in the 60s pre-crisis, it was Wonder Woman, not Black Canary, who was on the team. Now, what I think we're seeing here is a story from that era, but lensed through modern continuity. So they've basically taken Wonder Woman out and put Black Canary in in her place. Now, I had wondered, because you've explained it in a previous issue, but this has always been one of the, for me, just one of the most confusing aspects of the JLA's history. That, And I believe this is based on JLA Year One. Am I getting that right? Well, um, JLA Year One was where they told the origins of the Justice League in the new continuity, but I don't recall it having a story involving the key. Um, But certainly... In the original continuity, Wonder Woman was one of the first superheroes and was therefore on the League when it formed. Uh, But then when DC rebooted after Crisis on Infinite Earths, Wonder Woman didn't actually appear in in continuity for two or three years after the origins of all the other heroes. Right. So when the JLA formed, Wonder Woman wasn't actually around. Um, So they put Black Canary in in her place and said she was an original member of the League. That's so um, weird to me because I mean I no I don't I don't mean to knock mm-hmm. Black Canary, but you know for me she's never been I don't really think of her as being like one of, you know really like the founders in in a way, and it's it's always strange to me when I see these incarnations of this early version of the League, and most kind of strikingly Batman and Superman aren't there. Well, they weren't actually. Um, if you read. Uh... Justice League of America, their first appearance in uh, Showcase Comics, I think. Um, that's not the League's origin. That is just the first adventure we read. They've already formed at the beginning of the adventure. Batman and Superman are technically members, but both of them only appear in like two panels. You have right. Starro, Starro comes along. The League are like, oh, there's Starro, let's go fight him. But the League is just the five members, including Wonder Woman, not Black Canary. Right. And they try to get Batman and Superman to come along, but they both go, I can't, I'm busy. So effectively, the the point they had was they said Superman and Batman were members so they could have their names on the team, but they didn't include them in a lot of adventures because they wanted to showcase the less well-known characters um, right okay so it was a whole weird thing now i think in the origin of the league batman and superman weren't involved and it was said they joined after um and if you go back if you read J- uh, jla year one they both appear in the book but neither of them again actually joins the league um yeah it it's it's so weird it's strange isn't it mind you i i, I guess it's no more or less convoluted than, say, the Avengers origins. You know, to tell people that Captain America wasn't a founding member of the Avengers in the comics. You know, it's, it is a little weird. I think all the reboots do make it a bit more complicated with the Justice League. Because obviously now, Black Canary is no longer a founding member again, and Wonder Woman is, all of a sudden. So for about 15 years, DC was saying, no, 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 Black Canary was founder of the League, not Wonder Woman. And now that never happened. So, <laughs> Right. <laughs> Ah, oh, it's comics. Comics, everybody. Um, uh, what I will also say about this panel, though, is I don't know why Jean has pointy ears. I again, <laughs> I that that's part of the thing. Is isn't it like isn't he depicted that way in year one? Or am I dreaming that? Like I don't remember. I need to reread year one. Maybe PJ. Maybe Jean, we could read year one. Maybe Jean had temporarily grown pointy ears to help him defeat 
the keys sonic trap yeah i'll do it that'll do yeah why not does you now i'm now i'm doubting myself does jean have ears on a regular basis i don't yes. think he does does he Wait, oh no! The, I just flipped to the front cover, and that cuts off where his ears would be. I know. I'm desperately flicking back through the. Comic where is now. he? Come oh, on, he does have ears. He does have ears. He does have ears. What page are you on? Uh, I'm on page 18, and I can't see them. I'm on page 35, and he does have ears. Are they oh, pointy? Uh, no, but no, they're just regular, regular ears. Oh, there, there. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. We, there he is. Oh, are we about to blow this wide open? There's like, no, no. There's another ear. Yeah, he's definitely got ears. This is like <laughs> if if we'd chosen like the JLA as for our appearance on Mastermind, and the first question was, does Jean Jean have ears? <laughs> like, oh Just God. quit straight away. Um, but yeah, so regardless of which version of the JLA founded the damn thing, uh, the key battled them back in yes. the day. Yeah, he did. It, and it was a simpler time where you could get away with having a ridiculous headpiece that looked like a key. Um. But he obviously wasn't very successful, and he realised pretty quickly that the problem is the Justice League always win. Even if even if you're the smartest person in the world, the Justice League will always win. So, Which is a theme Morrison's going to return to, actually. Oh, yes, indeed. Hmm. But but being, being a snake... Uh, being a snake? What's wrong with me? Being what? a smart man... Oh, Not like us, then. <laughs> I, I should go back to huffing paint fumes. Um, <laughs> being a smart man and knowing he can't beat the JLA, the key decides to take even more of his intelligence enhancing drugs and slip into a nice little coma so he can just spend a few years while his brain evolves, basically. Yeah, he says he faked the coma. He faked his medical cover <laughs> and slipped into a coma to allow new and more powerful psychochemicals to forge a new and more powerful mind. That would be a nightmare, wouldn't it? If he'd put himself into a coma to evolve his brain, but hadn't arranged for decent medical cover. Especially in America. Especially in America, yeah. Thankfully, he had insurance. Possibly from Intergang. I don't know. Maybe they've got a good employee benefit package. But Um, I have to say, though, the last panel on this first page, because we're still only on page one, (laughs) is... um, a, it's a lovely, sinister drawing of the key by Oscar Jimenez. I I love this this one little image of him. He just looks so scary. It's a real contrast between the kind of golden age and the current age. You know, yeah. like, this is a character who has been, I mean, dragged kicking and screaming into the modern age. And, you know, you saw it a lot around this time, like giving characters like an edgy upgrade. But I think it works with the key. I think I think this new version of him is... It sounds infinitely more interesting than that original version. Yes, I think yeah, it not only works, I think it's it's a successful improvement of of what was a goofy 60s character. And also, I mean, given that we've seen the JLA fight angels and, you know, and aliens and, you know, really like kind of like world-ending threats so far, the key does a, has done a wonderful job in just like an issue of proving that he's a worthy opponent even though he, apart from being very smart, he doesn't have any obvious kind of superpowers. Yeah. yeah. He has to be a bit more creative, which I, I do like, actually. I love this line as well, that he says, people talk of the sixth sense, they have no idea. I am currently in possession of 11 senses and counting. <laughs> which is such a Morrison kind of... <laughs> which is such a Morrison throwaway line. So he's, uh, he's got... He can hear, he's got sight, taste, touch, smell, humor. sense of decorum. Yeah, um, timing. Oh, great sense of timing. Uh, um, sense of inevitability. 
A sense of sensibility. Oh, very good. Uh, sense or sense of a woman. Uh, <laughs> sense of a woman. <laughs> Stop there. We've, we've okay, done that bit. Done. You've perfected it. <laughs> um. Oh man, quite proud of that. Um, <laughs> you should so, yeah, be. So, that, so, John, uh, that's the high point of the whole podcast so far. The whole series, PJ. The whole it's series. Only, it's only downhill from here. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he um, he's he's basically still just kind of he just continues to describe his plot basically, and he's basically yeah he's infected the JLA with a programmable psychovirus, essentially a dream flu in his own words, which is taking over their nervous system and producing structured hallucinations, which is a very fancy way of saying it's basically virtual reality. Yeah, which is, as he speaks, being administered to both Flash and Green Lantern, because we, we haven't seen their virtual realities yet. No, no. And the idea is basically he doesn't think his plan is going to stop the JLA. In fact, he's actually kind of counting on them beating it, really. And he's yeah. Got, yeah, and he's got this crazy plan where it's like the moment the JLA realise they're dreaming, because the JLA always win, they will break free from the dream, and this will apparently cause an accompanying psycho surge of energy, which will give the key the power to finally project his brain into negative space, which will give him ultimate control of reality. Apparently, yeah. Apparently, I mean, he's smarter than us, PJ. Like, he's got to know what he's talking about. It's it's one of those plans where. You can't really question it because it's above your intelligence level. You're, you're just like, yeah, fair, okay, that's what you say. I'm going to take you on your word here. Um, and I guess you know, or, you know, as he as he finishes his nice little explanation, which we we have to believe, we cut to a close up of Wally the Flash, uh, looking, I guess, kind of troubled as his dream begins to take over. Yeah, so we finally get our first glimpse of of uh wally's reality and um he's basically still the flash but he <laughs> his his uh he was given a ring by a dying new god named fastback who is a real uh, character i believe yeah I which gives him a costume made of condensed hyperdimensional gel utterly frictionless it's a direct manifestation of the speed source itself so he's still the flash but very much tied into the the Jack Kirby's Fourth World, uh, which, if you're gonna do, you know, as a source of powers, is a is a wonderful. I mean, it's a wonderful catch-all. I don't want to say like it's a MacGuffin, but if you say it's come from New Genesis, you can probably get away with anything. Yeah, the the whole all of the Kirby stuff there, the whole New Gods, Dark Side, Orion. It's effectively a universe, a mini universe within the DC universe. Um, but it is such a brilliant one. I know, big fan of, I guess, the cosmic, the cosmic Superman, like the 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 space god kind of concept. It's yeah. it's it's brilliant. Like you and you see its echoes in a lot of things. Like I think every world has some kind of homage to it. Yes, very much so. But it, I think it's Kirby who really realised the full potential of it, and and you know the fourth world stuff has never been bettered. It's it's the original Kirby stuff is still the best. And I would say, speaking of like a little callback, um, the Flash's uh, costume in this world 
is a um, is a direct callback to the original. Uh, oh, going to get this wrong now. Jay Garrett costume. Oh, so close, so close. Jay Garrick. Oh, Jay Garrick. Damn it, <laughs> that's half a point. Um, <laughs> in that, he's got the amazing kind of Mercury helmet. Yeah, which is and amazing. He actually also reminds me of um, the look. Reminds me of Kingdom Come Flash. Oh, because yeah. that you know this this version of the Flash is just a solid silver color completely from head to toe with then the helmet being really the only defining feature um and flashing kingdom come is just a solid red blur effectively he's just this red humanoid shape with the silver helmet so it yeah it's very much a, a throwback to the golden age flash but it also very much seems to me to be just a slight call out to kingdom come which would have been just a year earlier wasn't kingdom come 96 it was 95 or 96, I forget which, but it wasn't long ago at all when this came out. And it's pretty fresh in people's memories. And obviously yeah. we, uh, Grant Morrison and Mark Wade are quite good friends. So I can see that kind of, you know, making sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, and in this bizarre reality that um, Wally has found himself in, this is quite a fun concept. Uh, every day at 12 o'clock, um, speed energy is leaking into the world. So everybody on the planet starts gaining super speed. And it's up to the Flash to stop everyone accidentally killing themselves, basically. Trying to maintain order in a world where everyone is capable of accelerating to light speed, which is crazy. And another one of those amazing Morrison ideas that he just throws away in a page. There are ten great ideas in this comic, which you could probably just spin off into amazing little series all in their own right. Yeah. Nobody should be that creative. It's... it's it's a problem. These days, this idea would lead to its own event book with a five-issue mini-series all on its own and then tie-ins in every ongoing title for three months. And... Because... And Morrison uses it for a page. Yeah. If... Yeah. Yeah. A page and a panel. That's all you get. <laughs> um, hang on. Didn't... Um... Of course, Morrison's got uh, experience with The Flash outside of JLA, hasn't he? Because... He, him and Mark Miller were working on the series of. of... I, I don't think they had yet. Um, I think that comes a little bit later on, because they he, basically they swapped books with Mark Wade because um, he was the writer on the Flash at the time. Uh, but yeah, Mar Morrison does do a run on the Flash. Right. No, and I think I'll definitely have more questions about that down the line when we get to when Mark Wade his little section on JLA. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll be interesting to know more about that. Um. I should say, there's a lovely little transition here where... There, oh, it's beautiful. I was going to mention that too. It's beautiful. Yeah, uh, where the, the panel... I mean, this is a really complex layout, but you have Flash lying in his little coffin dreaming, and you've got Batman in his little coffin, and the panel transitions so that you've got half of one, half of the other as we move between them, but also like upside down and at a diagonal angle going across the page, like... It's a complex shot. Yeah, it's really... I get the feeling this isn't how Morrison described it in the script. He probably just went... The, the dividing in half, yeah, but the angles that, that's been chosen here feels very much like an artistic choice to me, but it works so well. It sort of shows that th this is the league in disarray. Um, that, you know, the left half is the Flash, the right half is Batman, but it's drawn as one body... It also looks a bit like a kind of like a streak going across the page, like a. Yeah. a I don't know if that's meant to evoke the flash in some way, but hey, who knew? Comics are art. 
and but the flash actually says start speaking out loud his voice he says in his in his virtual reality his captions are saying everything's getting faster and faster and faster and out loud Wally says mm, faster <laughs> f-a-s-s-e-r yeah and you you know you instantly just go like oh yeah he's kind of like just dream murmuring to yeah. himself but then we got to batman and you can see something he's hearing within his dream which i i love and you can just imagine how that if this was uh a live action or an animated thing with actual voices you'd have this shot of batman but you sort of hear this echoey voice coming from somewhere else some other time and just in and yeah it's a really really good way of just evoking this feeling of that they are in their dreams and what's happening to them in there yeah because we we then of course transition to um bruce's dream which is you know this kind of i don't want to say post-apocalyptic but this you know it's gotham really gone to hell you've got police on the streets uh helicopters fires burning the rain and a a, a tank like batmobile rolling through the streets and i mean this is very dark knight returns isn't it yeah, it it it's not the same Batmobile from Dark Knight Returns, but you get the same feeling from it. It's it's a giant vehicle with a with two huge back wheels and then four smaller wheels on the front, and it's it's a more it's the sports car version, I think, of the Dark Knight Returns Batmobile. Do you how where do you sit on a on a on a chunky Batman like uh, like um, I know the um, the Frank Miller. Batman is 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 you know is deliberately extreme, but he he looks like the Hulk you know like just that kind of over muscled. So when the first time I read Dark Knight Returns, which would have been around this sort of time actually ninety eight ninety nine somewhere like that, um, I didn't like the art at the beginning of the book, and then it's as as I got further and further in, it sort of slowly started to click with me, and there's a very specific moment which is the moment when Batman has driven his giant tank of a Batmobile into the uh, the lair of the mutants, the, the gang of thugs. And he there's a splash page of Batman leaping out of the Batmobile. It's this giant hulking Batman with a grin on his face. That page is where I went, oh, I get this now. I see now what you're doing here. And um, in that particular book, I like it. It works for me. Um because of course Superman's drawn just as big as well in in Dark Knight Returns, um, and for that book it really works. When Miller did the sequels, less so. Not keen. I don't like anything about the sequels, um, or really anything Miller's done since Dark Knight Returns, if I'm honest. But um, but for well, yeah, for Dark Knight Returns, the big chunky Batman, I'm on board with. Anything else? Not so keen. So, what year was Dark Knight Returns? It was 80s. I want to say 87. I think it was just after oh, okay. or even around the same time as Watchmen. Oh, so yeah, sorry. Yeah, definitely earlier than I than I was thinking. So, I mean, so this is very clearly evoking that. It's an homage, yeah. Yeah, like, and, and Batman is a little stockier here. And I think it's a credit to, um, you know, Oscar on the art front because it, yeah, it's, you know, he, he draws a very good human. Like, I think his anatomy work is wonderful, actually. Yes, yeah. I really agree. It's not as exaggerated as Dark Knight Returns, but um, yeah, he is a slightly stockier. He looks Batman looks built, yeah. not excessively so, but like someone who can handle himself, which it's is a, a realistic what he would be. physique. Yeah, and um, no, I thought I was going to say something irrelevant. Oh no, that was it. It's the mustache. He shaved his mustache. Oh yeah, he. 
oh, I've got to keep that secret identity because <laughs> we we cut to in the Batmobile and and Batman and Catwoman have suited up again. Yeah, and as we were saying, like this is a Batman kind of like in his fifties or sixties sort of thing. And what I, I just I do love the image of how a retired Bruce Wayne gets the call that the Joker has returned, that his son is you know being tortured and is about to be killed and he runs down to the Batcave to suit up but also runs via the bathroom to shave his moustache off i feel like this shows how skilled batman is because that would have been a very quick shave a very quick did, shave yeah and he didn't cut himself he did a fantastic job you know and there's no alfred here in this world i assume alfred has passed on so he didn't <laughs> yeah. he, he didn't have a, he didn't have his 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 gentleman's gentleman to help him so I mean, I just love that image, like <laughs> racing. And I don't think the world was quite ready for a moustached Batman. It would have looked weird. It would have looked a little weird, unless he would have brought his cowl down a bit. like <laughs> Or gone full mask. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, so, sorry, yeah, here's me uh, going on at great length about Batman's facial hair. But um, we we have a lovely moment while... Batman and his wife, Catwoman, are in the cockpit of the Batmobile, which is where you start to see Bruce's mind working in its own little way, which is amazing. Yeah, because you've got Catwoman is panicking because their son, as far as she's concerned, is is about to be killed by the Joker. And so she's saying, can't this thing go faster, Bruce? I know it can. But he's he's just keep your head. Keep your head. Tim Stalling, talking to the other Batman. And then he just says, how long have we been married, Selina? 21 years? There's something strange here. And it's not, he's not trying to calm her there. He's clearly saying to her, wait, hang on. How long have we been married? Okay, it's 21 years. I know that, but do I? Is how it reads. Yeah, he's just so incredibly focused on the task at hand. And part of that is this weird little mystery he can feel in the back of his head because he's he's a detective, like first and foremost, and he's, he's the world's just, greatest detective. And he's starting to realise that this world doesn't entirely make sense. Like, I do love that, that even when Batman is dreaming, he cannot help but be the most rational person in the it's room. just the way his brain works. He's trained it so well to pay attention to all the clues, even subconsciously. The clues he's not even aware he's seen and is picking up on yet. His brain is already working on them. And at the same time, we get this... Again, a, a very, I guess, emotionally visceral scene where the Joker is shooting um, Bruce Jr., the new Robin. He's already shot him in the leg. There's there's a wound, blood pouring from it. It's it's pretty brutal. It's pretty brutal. And, and poor Tim Drake, Batman, is screaming, saying, like, he says he's going to shoot Robin at five-minute intervals. I'm serious. He wants you. And... You just see this kind of aged, decrepit Joker, and he's he's basically just like delighting in this, you know. Like, and he's he's saying like he's called Robin too. He was basically asking for it. I've I've been a long time waiting to make it three in a row with you, boy. Oh, little reference to Jason Todd there. Well, yeah, I, I, and I guess it also suggests that he's killed a second Robin in this timeline. Make it three in a row. Sort of implies he's killed Dick. Yeah. Hmm. 
But you also get in the background the headlights of the Batmobile with just a little uh, a little speech bubble from it saying loudspeaker on deploy net. And Joker goes, how many dead robbings will it take before the old man turns up in his bat zimmer, grits his false teeth and says, and then this tank of a Batmobile just erupts kind of over the Joker and you hear ba- you hear Batman screaming via loudspeaker, just Joker. <laughs> he, probably, yeah. probably, he probably says it in a bit more of like an emotionally visceral way, but yeah. Uh, he doesn't just go like, hey, Joker. He's probably like, <laughs> like Joker. hey, Joker, what's up? <laughs> How you and, doing? Long time. And there's, again, a nice a credit to the art because the this tank of a Batmobile kind of like glides overhead. You get a real sense of kind of movement. And the Joker is now like ensnared in a, in a net. And um, from the Batmobile, he just goes, I can electrify the net from here. Stay where you are, Joker. It's yeah, it's just a lovely panel, and the Joker's happy to do it. He just wants to see the look on Batman's face, and he calls him Bruce. So Joker knows who Batman is at this point in this reality. And Batman emerges uh, from the car, the true, the true Batman. And Joker is—he rips open his shirt to reveal a bomb tied to his chest, and he's just kind of cackling with laughter, and he says. This is a tactical nuclear weapon. I have a particularly terminal little cancer. Well, wouldn't you? And it, the timer says two seconds on the clock. And then he starts laughing. Uh, but then he looks confused as a series of green tools, a mallet, a screwdriver, assorted other tools, appear and um, dismantle the bomb. And you hear someone talking from off-panel in, I assume, an alien language because it's all just a weird collection of symbols. It's, I think those symbols have regularly been used in the in the comics to show when someone is speaking Kryptonian. Ooh, okay, that's good to know. Um, thankfully, I don't have to get out my decoder ring because uh, halfway through the dialogue, it suddenly switches to English, which I'm going to assume is because a certain device is translating... And um, we hear someone talking and they say, from the planet Krypton in Sector 2318 of the Owen Protectorate, please forgive the rapid culture shock, but I had to act directly and quickly. But what I also love about this panel, you still can't see who's speaking, but we all know who it is. Um, But you have Tim Drake Batman and Catwoman on either side of the panel, and they're both looking very confused, very surprised. Our Batman is centre panel and he just looks like batman he's not confused or baffled in the slightest he's like yep figured this was coming and we get this glorious splash page of batman and superman well batman and green lantern meeting for the first time in this reality and we have the joker banished to the phantom zone and Uh, that is glorious i love that drawing of just the flat but in a green panel a green phantom zone (laughs) yeah which is being generated by the ring which i guess raises like so many questions um but yeah and um you have kal-el the green lantern of krypton who goes the fission device has been disabled and this man secured in the phantom zone you can call me kal-el this goes do i know you 
at which point we get the credits. So uh, the story is called Elseworlds, and they've gone less crazy with the computer lettering here. They've dialed it down slightly. It looks like, almost like a normal title box. <laughs> They're uh, learning. They're learning. And then, and then the credits are Grant Morrison, writer, Oscar Jimenez, penciler. And I want to draw attention to this next bit. So you get Chip Wallace and Hannibal Rodriguez as the inkers. So presumably inking different pages. And um, you can see that through the book. There are moments where when I hadn't actually paid attention to the credits and I was reading this, I honestly thought there were two different artists, two different pencilers on the book, which just shows how much difference an inker can make. Both very good. I'm not not saying that some pages are worse than others. They just look different. Mm. So it's a good. this issue is a good indicator of what difference an inker can make to the art. Uh, but then also Pat Garrahy does the colours, Heroic Age computer seps, Ken Lopez is the letterer, Peter Tomasi is the associate editor and Dan Raspler is the editor. It's a full cast, this this episode, this mm. issue. Yeah. It, I do wonder, because, of course, with Howard Porter being off the book for a couple of issues, you know, maybe that was to give his, you know, risks a bit of a, a bit of a rest. I, I do not know. Um, but it's interesting that there's a different editor than the previous issue. Uh, it was Ruben Diaz before. It was, yeah. I don't know if maybe the because books do change editors often halfway through a story, maybe. So maybe this is just the new editorial team for JLA. Mm, yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll check on that. If it is, we're just we're just peeking behind the curtain into you know we're, we're kind of learning how the sausage is made. Um, but then we cut from a, a familiar Superman face in an unfamiliar costume to I I was going to think if there was a neat way of tying that together, but a very familiar electric blue Superman in an awesome costume. Uh, yep. asleep with a bit of lightning crackling out of his eyes which is quite fun uh, and um, it indicates there has been some kind of energy surge through Superman uh, as Keyman asks them to keep the keys sorry, keep the cameras I'm obsessed with keys now keep the cameras rolling through it um, and he, he wants everyone to experience the moment when the League wake up and he uses their energy uh, to further his goals effectively he's recording this for posterity he's making a documentary about the time he beat the justice league and opened up the doors of reality i do, I do like how also the the key is you know monologuing like a champ and if i'm honest kind of asking to be eventually undone here because he's really just talking when he should be acting and it, it falls upon one of his robot minions to remind him that Superman's energy profile is becoming increasingly stable. He could soon pose a threat. Additionally, I must remind you that Green Arrow is still at large. And the key basically says, you mustn't remind me of anything unless I tell you to remind me. So he he's asking for it. Let's be he, honest. He, yeah, he, he says Green Arrow isn't a threat. He's just an un- unanticipated element. Um, hubris. Uh, and he also says Superman is doing exactly what he wants. So he then tells them to switch to aggressive mode and uh, then says, and if you, by chance you do stumble across Green Arrow, in quotation masks, I don't think he's accepted the new Green Arrow. Make it messy. I do really like this panel of the key because he's got obviously very long hair. He's very emaciated. And here he is sweating quite profusely, which he kind of gives the impression, which I guess kind of explains his hubris and his uh his lack of well you know his lack of awareness here but he comes across a bit like a junkie because he's it's like he's kind of strung out on these drugs and isn't really thinking straight despite his intelligence yeah yeah uh, yeah it's really well done and 
we have a wonderful transition here. And again, maybe you should talk about your love for Green Arrow's mask, PJ. Yeah, it's it's again the showing the movement because he's leaping through the air, flipping. You get one of those things where they, they the artist will draw the same character multiple times in a panel to show movement and the the previous ones will sort of be colored lighter and then the 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 one that is the current moment is is a more solid version of the character but green arrow leaps through the air clutching his bow and the mask just flows gracefully behind him in the air um but actually these two pages um certainly are two of the ones i was talking about where you can see the difference in art with the different inker to the point where at first I was thinking, is this penciled by someone else? And it's not. It's just inked differently. And they, they look great. They, I love it. But you can tell it's a different inker. I do, actually. I'm, I, I've always been struck by this um, the pose of the robot in this panel, like where he's kind of firing. And it's a, it's a daft little thing to focus on, but I've always liked how it looks in this panel because the robots are kind of lanky. They're not really muscular so you don't have the obvious tools to fall back on as an artist to make them look dynamic and yet yeah. this lanky robot just looks badass in this panel like as it's yeah. opening fire it's just a really really nicely drawn page and then we get um a few panels of green arrow basically trying to use his dad's trick arrows and he's got <laughs> caption boxes and i love that they are shaped like arrows Oh my god, they're right. You're right. Oh my god. <laughs> they're, they're shaped like arrows and the letters are green. And you get a lovely little glimpse into Connor's way of thinking here because he is very professional, like he's really focused on his job. He's also very kind of pissed off, <laughs> like he's not happy to be in this situation at all. And you can sense his frustration at having to use these ridiculous arrows, which... For example, he reaches for one, and it's a bomb arrow. It has a timer in the head, and there's a glorious panel of him just looking at this thing while it beeps with a look of absolute horror on his face. And you get the rest of the pages narrated through caption boxes where you get a sense of reticence, actually, about him even being there. He says, I'm only here because Green Lantern talked me into it. And he's like, I, I don't have superpowers. I can't do what the rest of the League does. I just shoot arrows. And then as he stares at this explosive arrow, which is on four seconds when he pulls it out of his quiver, with horror, his caption box says, and I'm not even sure I can manage that right now, as he says out loud, explosive arrow? And he screams and throws it at the robot. Just, just chucks it. Just chucks an arrow. <laughs> and uh, he talks about his dad, and he says, like, you know, Oliver Queen, my father, the first green arrow, was either a genius or a madman. Um you know, and he's talking about he's filling the readering, saying he's having to use all this old trick equipment. And he says only a madman could use this equipment. Only a genius could use it. I better decide which I want to be fast. He also says the key, whoever he is. Uh, so Connor hasn't heard of the key either. He has no idea. He hasn't read those old early issues of Justice League. And no, no, he hasn't done his homework. So I don't know how he was hoping to pass his uh, initiation. Um, but. He's just getting, and it's, this is beautiful. Like he shoots his yeah. robot with the boxing glove arrow, which basically just bounces off its chest, doesn't it's do really anything. Really, just a beautiful little back <laughs> sound and effect. And he's going like, net arrows, boxing glove arrows. How about just one pointed arrow, Dad? <laughs> <laughs> it's brilliant. It's 
absolutely brilliant. And then he, he says, look, I'm alone on the moon against a lunatic who's managed to paralyze the most powerful living creatures on Earth. Their lives are in my hands. I have to remain calm as he prepares to fire handcuff arrows from his dad's bow. Which I guess kind of he's trying to handcuff for robot's legs and yeah. it misses and the arrow just goes wide. And then he launches this bizarre looking arrow with lots of weird little bits on the quiver and it shoots right past the robot's head to the point where the robot goes misks by seven centimeters six millimeters your supply there's a lot of sass in these robots they were yeah they were... Like the keys keys giving them emotions he says your supply of arrows has run out i've been counting what will you and then suddenly the arrow erupts through the robot's head but pointing the other way and it collapses to the floor and Connor just goes, use the boomerang arrow. And I love Connor's pose in this panel. He's kneeling on the floor, leaning on the bow. And it's a very Robin Hood pose. It's the sort of thing you can... It's a very... Yeah, you can picture Robin Hood in, in the adapted media of his stories in, in films and TV shows and comics and books. <laughs> he poses like that when he's just done something very cool with a bow. And I think Connor has every right here. He has a little smug smile on his face yep. as well. Um, and also, I guess, you know, Oliver Queen, he had at least one sharp arrow in his in his retina. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, good God. I mean, like, there's a wonderful moment in, there's a wonderful moment in JLA Avengers where, yeah. Um, yeah. Haw- yeah, when Hawkeye is fighting the Flash because it happened um, and he tries to shoot the Flash with a uh, a boomerang arrow purely because he's done it before to the wizard yes the squadron supreme and and i remember that issue uh, i think it's avengers issue five in the third volume of the kurt Busiek volume where he hits the wizard with a boomerang arrow oh speaking of that particular story how good were the, the uh, squadron supreme's redesigned costumes oh yes i thought the wizard looked fantastic actually he did yeah um but that's a story for another day i mean doc spectrum that's a costume <laughs> Jesus, um, but yeah, and and the Flash um, very knowingly goes, uh, uh, "I've had some experience with boomerangs," and just catches it out of the air. He also calls Hawkeye Purple Arrow. Ooh, yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, but we cut we cut away PJ, and we are suddenly in back in Wonder Woman's dream, where of course they are. I'm trying to remember how much I remember now. They are confronting Baroness. Oh, God, what was her name again? Does it matter? I can hear you flicking back. I know. Baroness Paula von Gunther, who has... Because I couldn't remember and I didn't want to flick back. So. Uh, and, uh, who is gloating on a, on a throne and has the planet Earth in a bottle, like you do. And uh, Steve Trevor is, is warning Diana not to get closer to her. She's planning something. Um and uh, the Baroness basically is is gloating. Says, look at you, Wonder Woman. No powers. You're no match for the siren call of the world in the bottle. There is old power here, dark power. And um, Wonder Woman starts to disappear. She just fades out of this reality. Um, Steve calls her name, calls Diana, and then she just appears in the sky somewhere else and says, yeah. Hera, I can't fly. I can't. This is... Now, PJ, I... I, oh my god! I cannot tell you how much I love this. Um, poor uh, Wonder Woman, who of course has no powers, is falling from thousands of feet. 
towards a boat on a on a on a on a on a sunken city. Of course, we are in Aquaman's dream, and as she's falling, you just get a, a bubble with nothing but three dots in it, which is the comic book shorthand for "Hang on a minute." Yep. And she goes in a tiny voice, goes, "It's a hallucination." Damn. Every time, and I just, I love it. I love it. It's so good. Like they've been doing this so long that they have been trapped in so many dreams by weird villains that it's just another day in the office for them. I yeah, oh, I, I I love it. I absolutely and, love it. And we we cut to the deck of the ship where Aquaman is fighting manta raiders and calling for people to get the children below decks. And someone shouts to him that there's a manta raider approaching, and then Wonder Woman lands on it just kicks it as she <laughs> falls and she lands on the deck just fine and aquaman straight away is like who are you where did you and then there's a moment and he then goes wonder woman and she just says to him look arthur this isn't real come on we're we're trapped in a nightmare no one's dying it's all an illusion and aquaman just goes oh, of course <laughs> and i'm 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 wondering if this is very much a we've just done this we've just done midsummer's nightmare that was less than a year ago <laughs> <laughs> maybe so <laughs> i just love like i i've said it before and i'll say it again one of the things i love about this series is the idea that all the players are old hands at this like yep. they know each other they're like they're old colleagues and this is just this is just an occupational hazard like if you're a superhero like you know we all have that story where the psychic villain messes with your heads and they're just like Oh, pity's sake, not again. Like, crying out loud. Certainly with Aquaman, you just feel how tired he is of this. He's like, (laughs) oh, come on. They, um... And with that realisation, as the two of them start to realise they're dreaming, we see the key in his key throne, uh, his floating key key throne. Which is topped with something that looks like his old headpiece, because even though it was a silly costume, he also... You've got to remember where he came from. Oh, You've got to exactly, remember your yeah. history. And there is a bizarre... Well, he calls it a doorway, but there, there is this bizarre structure like starting to appear like out of nowhere next to him. Um, it looks a bit like a weird futuristic keyhole, basically. Yeah. Um, and he is still talking to himself, and he's... He's saying like, uh, oh, you know, it's happening, it's happening. The negative space gate is starting to drain ambient radiation. I can feel it with Sense 10. And there's a wonderful thing going on in the background, PJ. Do you know, that's a detail I've never noticed before, actually. I've always been so busy concentrating on the key and his monologue and the... Because the the keyhole seems to be forming in front of him, but there also seems to be a model of it forming in a device in his hand. I guess. <laughs> um, but yeah, you're right. In the background of this second panel, the Flash is lying in his casket, but his arm is raised. And then in the third panel, the key looks concerned and the Flash isn't there. And the key <laughs> says, all they have to do is wake. And then he gets the three dots, huh? And then he just says quietly, the Flash. <laughs> and... You see um, Connor pulling the arrow out of the head of this robot, and Wally is suddenly just like a blur behind him. And he basically it, it looks... He's not even on the floor. He must have vibrated through that wall. I, I guess, yeah. I mean, I kind of like... At the general speeds the Flash operates at, he probably could have, like, checked every corridor in yep. the watchtower in, like, the blink of an eye until he found 
GA, as he says. Um, but he goes, my super speed metabolism must have accelerated his drug through my system much faster than he expected. The key, I thought this guy was dead. Back me up on this, GA. And uh, Green Arrow has doubts. He's just, <laughs> no, wait, wait, Flash. And then he says, I've been trying to use my father's trick arrows. I don't know how he did it. It's impossible. Look, I will never in all my life be able to shoot a thing like this. And Flash isn't listening. Uh, or, or Flash is listening, uh, but just knows what the rest of us are going to come and realize in a few pages time. Yeah, he just, he knows that G- Green Arrow, I was going to call him GA there again. He knows that Green Arrow is here for a reason. He's like, sure, see you at the finish. And yeah, the Flash races towards the key. Uh, in this kind of glorious crackle of like uh, flash lightning, which is wonderful. Um, but the key goes, ah, but there you are. He goes, unfortunately, still a little slow from the psycho psychochemicals. And he opens fire with his key gun, which is amazing. I mean, why not have a branded gun? <laughs> I mean, he doesn't hit the flash, but flash dodging it is enough to throw him off. And, and he does, he falls, to, he sort of trips over and falls to the floor. And the key just starts to gloat. And he points out that the gate is forming, asks his throne to self-destruct, and then says, five-second countdown. And Wally picks himself up, looking a little shaken, as the key is walking towards this energy doorway. And Wally just goes, four seconds more than I need. And then we're back in Dream Gotham, so to speak. And Kal-El, the Green Lantern of Krypton, is basically explaining that he followed a weird signal from across the galaxy which led him here. And Batman isn't paying attention because Batman is stroking his chin. This is another glorious Batman moment. Glorious, Um, like incredible. (laughs) Because Green Lantern Superman has has mentioned the space emissions and uh, Batman just goes, signals, you said. I've trained myself to pay very close attention to messages from my body. And this isn't my body. And this confuses everyone. Kal-El just says, what? And Batman says, this is a simulation. I'm unconscious. I appear to be a fit man in his 60s, but the blood pressure and heart rate I'm experiencing would fit the profile of a much younger and very probably unconscious man. It's like incredible, incredible. Um, and, And he just goes... My guess is that these hallucinations are symptoms of some kind of neural infection and my antibodies are fighting it, which accounts for the rapid loss of emotional intensity in the scenario. Not long ago, I was terrified for the safety of my son. Basically saying, but now I couldn't care less. (laughs) And Catwoman is looking very confused. She's like, Bruce, is, is something wrong? And right then, the gateway appears the the bizarre key door is suddenly crackling on the floor next to them and, and sorry Peter. yeah no i was just going i love the the green lantern superman points at it and just goes what is that and batman's just very casually worth investigating and i love how they're still not technically there yet like bruce has almost worked it out but like their memories are still a bit shot they don't entirely know each other in this reality and yet they both instantly just fall into the world's finest you know like they are without missing a beat the two of them just walk towards this gate to work out what the hell is going on because that's what they do and heroes 
Catwoman starts to protest, but at that point we then cut back to Diana and Arthur, and the gateway has appeared on the ship for them as well. And Arthur's still not fully with it. He's he's still sort of battling with this other reality. He says the people on the ship, they they need me. And Diana points out to him, look, they're not real. Real people need us in the real world. Oh, look, a gateway. Let's go through it. And it's that classic, you know, the tugging on your emotional, you know, tugging on your heartstrings. Um, Catwoman is basically screaming at, at, at Bruce going like, you know, this is insane. You can't leave us like this. I love you. This is our life. And, you know, Batman just, you know, sad, you know, I get the impression there's a, there's a slight sadness here, even though he's being very cold. He just goes, we have no life, not here. I'm sorry, but you're not real. And him and and Green Lantern Superman just walk through the gateway. And I think Batman is now finally, he's back in the moment. Like he knows who he is again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Kal-El isn't because he does say that the doorway isn't registering under spectral analysis. And Batman, I almost feel slightly exasperated. <laughs> says, That's because you don't have a power ring, Superman. <laughs> Try to concentrate. You are, a, you are Superman asleep. And the four heroes are united all in their strange costumes but you see kind of you see kal-el or clark kind of like struggling a bit and he goes i i'm superman my my father is dead krypton is dead i think it's interesting here that that he is the last of the four to sort of have any remembrance of who he is because obviously wonder woman and batman are just fully back and aquaman struggled a little on the ship but he's 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 realized now but it's only here that kal-el i don't know maybe it's the, the promise of a home world that he lost yeah. is, is a strong tie for him. It's quite close to home, doesn't it? But I've got to say, again, a, another brilliant moment of JLA camaraderie because Aquaman is just pissed off. Yeah. <laughs> he just goes, that mind thing again. They just keep taking us like this. <laughs> and Batman is basically, yes, they do. And, you know, we need to try and stop this happening again. We'll talk to Jean about it. But in the meantime... And you hear this voice from off panel that goes, go no further. And you just see Batman looking like, Ugh, right on cue. <laughs> and this voice shouts, understand that you trespass on the boundaries of the antimatter uni- universe of Quad. <laughs> <laughs> and we see Kyle Rayner um, in a bizarre costume. He's, he's part machine, part man. His right arm is uh, three yellow... Sort of almost they look like surgical devices almost and he's got silver armor with a green costume underneath it and a yellow cape and sort of almost a perverted black and yellow green lantern symbol on his chest and a, a yellow power ring uh and he goes i am weaponeer 500 sector dictator for the gar- for the oh how oh my god how are you supposed the to say quardians of the galaxy the quardians of the galaxy <laughs> this is your final warning and Batman just walks up to him and grabs him. And I love this line. Nintendo has a lot to answer for. <laughs> it goes, if you were made of antimatter, we'd be exploding right now, Green Lantern. Pull yourself out of it. <laughs> and that's all he needs. <laughs> that is all Kyle needs. And that's all we really need of Kyle's virtual reality. It's like we completely understand where Kyle has been, what his mind has, has been doing. And it's ridiculous. It's so in character for him. And I love that Batman can just pull him out of it like that. And it also it's also kind of interesting that of course we don't see we don't spend time with Kyle in this dream world. 
Um, but also, of course, he's the newest member of the team with the least connections to the superhero community. So the others are all like old old hands, like they've gone through this many times. So it kind of makes sense that Kyle would be a bit deeper in the dream, in a way. Yeah. And um but then it's also clear as well that we know where what he's been up to, what his dream has been. He's basically been playing video games. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. And as you say, it doesn't take much. Suddenly Kyle is like back in the room. And in fact they all are because the next panel they're all in their regular costumes. And yeah, and they're kind of just like picking up the pieces. Like Kyle's like, wait, wait a minute, what was I what was I doing? And Wonder Woman goes did we dream all of these lives? And Batman, who just looks great, you know, just looking ominous as hell, goes, hmm, but why should we all be experiencing the same hallucination unless... dot, dot, dot. And then we cut suddenly to the little coffin where Batman is lying, and he just goes, don't wake up! And he kind of, like, snaps awake. He wakes up saying, don't wake up. And what I love, though, is Superman next to him is also awake, but giving him a look that almost says, bit late for that, isn't it? <laughs> and we see the key reaching for the doorway to negative space. And he well, goes, also, we, we first of all see the Flash having dismantled the key's throne before it could explode with a spanner in his hand. <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah, it's, it's almost a blinking, blinking you'll miss it spanner. Yeah. yeah. Um, the key is reaching for this magical door. And he goes, when I enter negative space, the entire universe will fit around me like a glove. I'll be in complete control. It all seems so. These four next four panels are beautiful. I love it. Um, a boxing glove arrow smacks into the key's face. And the it's very it's it's a raging bull moment, isn't it? You've got him sort of pushed to the side, blood coming out of his mouth. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if Oscar Jimenez had looked at Raging Bull and paused the screen to to get a reference for that panel. And then, as you say, PJ Vogue, followed by an amazing panel where the key is kind of just like teetering. <laughs> like he makes like a feeble, feeble grasp for the doorway, but he's already going down. And then and he just it's, it's, slaps. It, it feels to me like a... Even though the panel shows one moment, it, it feels to me like a moment in slow motion. Yeah. Like if this were moving, he would be falling slow motion and he is he is literally seeing stars. And his face just smacks onto the floor and he goes, it all seems so ridiculous and just collapses. And, and then you cut to a hero shot of Connor holding the bow, having released the boxing glove arrow. And he just says, that's what I would have thought too. And... Oh, I love it so much. Connor steps up and uses the boxing glove arrow to take down the bad guy. His father would be proud. It's such a tying everything up with a brilliant, neat little bow. And all's well that ends well. A neat, little, a neat little bow and arrow. Oh, there it is. There it is. The second, the second best line of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then we get an epilogue. Uh, epilogue two, actually, yeah, and which I assume means we're going to count down. I assume, unless something was redacted when it was yeah. <laughs> when it was published. Um, but yeah, and we have Green Arrow's inauguration, his induction, or whatever you'd call it. Um, well deserved, I would say. Yes, I would completely agree. And we have a, a wonderful line from Superman, which, of course, people forget that Superman can have a sense of humor. 
But he goes, I'm sure you won't be too surprised to hear everyone's in agreement. And after today's events, no further assessment will be required. <laughs> and what you, you have Green Arrow stood on one side of the JLA's table and the other five members are, are sat directly opposite him. But Kyle is, is stood using his ring to burn something into one of the other empty chairs. And as Superman congratulates him and says, get used to saving the universe. Um, and he says, I know if Ollie could have been here to see this, he'd have been he'd, he'd have been cheering. And, and then Batman gets as sentimental as Batman gets. And he offers his hand to shake, which is probably like the highest praise Batman could give just about anyone, I would say. Yeah. But of course, Batman praise is to say, impressive work, make sure you keep it up. <laughs> and Connor takes his chair, which now has a green bow and arrows burned into it. And he goes, thank you, Batman. Good to be here. And then we get our second epilogue, which is... Presumably epilogue one? Epilogue one, I would imagine. And frankly, an amazing page. Yeah. Entirely in its own right. Um, We see the key back in hospital in a kind of medically induced coma. And Superman is checking up on him. With one of those classic Morrison lines. We were able to confine him in a perpetually branching fractal maze, a mind prison without doors. He seems to be enjoying the mental stimulation. <laughs> but he does say that this has to be a temporary measure. And in the meantime, and there's a doctor who says, uh, we understand the danger he poses. We'll do what we can. And meanwhile, you have the same nurse from the uh, the angel issues when the key was in the coma and originally woke up they're still reading the same tabloids she was reading back then <laughs> and again in these following four panels which is such a brief tiny moment in this entire issue you get one of the best batman superman moments like yep. i could imagine like it, it it's it just shows how much morrison understands their relationship and you get uh, Superman basically showing regret over what they've had to do and, and saying he doesn't like it. Can't they rehabilitate him? And he says, all he did was show us our own whatever, fears, desires. And <laughs> Typical Batman. He took us down like amateurs. He showed us we're still vulnerable. And I like how they're just on the roof of the hospital. Yeah. Like, you know, they're just checking in on the key just for two of them. And Batman's just chilling, you know. I think something a lot of people forget about this era is is Batman's on the roof of the hospital wasn't in the room because as far as the general public are concerned and Batman works to continue and perpetuate this Batman is a myth oh Batman is, that... is still an urban myth as far as the general public are, are aware interesting interesting yeah no I, I remember that I remember that concept but I wasn't sure that was around now it didn't. It was finished with um, during the War Games crossover in the Batman books, which I want to say was mid two thousands, like two thousand five, six, something like that. Um, that was the moment where Batman officially sort of came out to the world, where he revealed himself, had to save some people, but couldn't do so without being on camera, and suddenly the world knew Batman was real. And. But clearly, I mean, as much as, you know, he, he's a secret to the world, you, you do get this continuing idea that Bruce and Clark know each other well and have yes. been working for ages together. 
and you get this wonderful moment where Superman is preparing to teleport out and he just goes, I saw Gotham in flames and Batman, not looking at him, just goes, best forgotten Superman. So Clark's trying to reach out to his friend and basically say, look, if you want to talk, do you want to deal with this? I'm happy to be there for you. And and Bruce is all, uh-uh, we're not doing that. No, I'm just going to put it away. And it's such a lovely, like, very mundane line. But Superman just goes, hmm, do you need a ride back east? And Batman just goes, already taken care of. And Superman erupts into the sky in a burst of energy and just goes, of course, you know, of course, you would never accept a lift from me. He goes, good night, Bruce. And, and this is the final panel of the whole comic is just a small panel of Batman silhouetted against the moon. And he just goes, huh, Clark. And I think it's a lovely, very quiet ending like, to, uh, to the issue. Quite, yeah, like... I don't know if it's a thing you think about this series as being like big on action and not very big on character development, but and yet that's that's just one of the most wonderful moments between the two, and it's genuinely quite a little a little maudling, like a little yeah. sad. <sighs> yeah, Batman alone on a rooftop, just and, pondering what he saw, and I and I think you know it's like clearly. Superman will never give up on Batman. Like, that's the no. nature of their friendship. But, like, you can see that even Superman is occasionally a little frustrated at, like, the walls which Batman puts up. Like, he's forever locking people out. Yeah. And it's just this knowledge that he offers Batman he offers Batman help, knowing that Batman would never ex- accept it. But, yeah, and, and just going, like, yeah, you know, good night, Bruce. And the fact that Batman actually responds... I kind of just speaks volumes, even just with one word, just saying like Clark, you know, you just, you just know that in his own little way, like Superman means a lot to him as well. Yeah. And the fact that he knows as well, he, he, he's almost just whispering it, but Superman, even at his new speeds, his new energy speeds as far away as he was already be, Batman knows he'll hear it too. So good. Well, PJ, I mean, that is, you know, the end of an issue, the end of a, arc the end of a book i mean yeah that's the end of american dreams uh, the second trade collection of jla so i mean what are your what are your thoughts pj as we come to the end of of that little story i think my the initial thing i want to say is that oscar jimenez does such a good job on the art yeah a hundred percent i didn't miss i didn't miss howard porter i love howard porter and when i think of the league i think of images drawn by him but I don't miss him for this story because Jimenez is so good. Oh yeah, no, he he does a fantastic job, like a, like a really a fantastic job. It's it's never easy when an art team changes on a book, particularly particularly if it's 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 only for a couple of issues. Like you know, you you're always going to get the you know because people don't like change. You know, yeah, it's, for a, a fill in artist, effectively, it's it's always very difficult for them to come in and just do one or two issues in the middle of another. Um, let's face it, renowned artist who's very highly thought of by the readers to come in and take over just briefly. Yeah, but what a but what a job. Like, you know, it's really beautiful. And again, it it, you know, works in both the action scenes where, you know, he shows an amazing sense of scale, 
you know, location and, and anatomy to make these characters really feel like they're in the scenes they're inhabiting. But also, like, the quiet moments as well. Like, there's some lovely character development and little expressions in here. It's, it is great. Like, it's, it's a real, it's a real little gem from an otherwise great series. Like, it kind of overlooked a bit, I feel. Yeah, in fact, having said that when I think of the League, I think of Porter's depictions of thems, of them, thems <laughs> isn't a word. <laughs> Why not, PJ? It is now, yeah. we're writers. There we go. Um, no, when I think of the the them, but if I think of Green Arrow, it's actually an image from these two issues that will normally come to mind. So it's usually uh-huh. the, the Jimenez depiction of Connor Hawk that will, that will come into my head if I think of him. Yeah, and actually, like, for... You know, if the per- I guess the great thing about this little two-parter is it's a fun adventure. You get to see some wacky versions of the characters. There's a lot of opportunities for comedy, but also like a bit of, you know, bit of emotion, you know, surprisingly emotional in places. But then, you know, there's action. It serves as an introduction to Green Arrow. Like it does all these things. And I think it kind of exceeds all of them. It's, a, it's really a stellar two-parter and yeah just so well done by everyone like and we we think of it as being a more personal story it's it's a vendetta the key has against the league we're seeing their the virtual reality what their subconsciouses are, are telling them they they either want or fear as superman puts it um but it is still and it's not really something you think about until after the fact but it is actually also still a world-threatening <laughs> uh world-threatening bad guy because if he succeeds he's not just going to have taken down the league he's going to have done whatever going into negative space will do to let him command reality and again it's there is this danger of escalation where oh i'm gonna cough pj pardon me (coughs) sorry there's this danger of escalation where once you've had the jla fighting angels once you've had them fighting an army of white martians you get you start to run into this problem where you have to up the ante every time. Like it always has to get more and more extreme to the point where it might become, I guess, a bit ridiculous. You know, like once you've battled one world-ending device, what's the next one? So I think it's actually a credit to the series that you can. There's a lot of inventiveness in the villains they fight and the threats they have to defeat. It's uh, the key leads to a different paced adventure that it's not just smashy smashy boom boom like (laughs) it's actually quite creative they have to face him in creative ways and i guess interestingly the jla doesn't actually defeat the key i mean it's it's green arrow really it's a boxing glove arrow it's a boxing glove arrow um (laughs) did um what do you what what are your thoughts on the series at this point, like where we stand now? I think I go I try and go back to my mindset when I first was reading these books when they uh, when they came out. As I say, I bought four in the first four in very quick succession, so I think strength in numbers had come out by the time I was reading these. Um, and the first two volumes, I loved them. They were great, and they kept me going uh, on, kept me wanting to read more and go on. It's volume three, which we're coming to, um, not next week, uh, <laughs> sorry, not next episode rather, because we're a fortnightly podcast, um, because we have another tangent to go off on, and if you know this series, you probably already know what that is. But um, it was volume three, though, that really made me go, wow, this series is something else. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so I've loved these stories. I love revisiting them, but it's as a build up to what comes next that I that I think I love them the most because the next volume is just stunning. I do feel yeah, like I look back on the series and I think of you start to see these kind of like phases and this this particular book american dreams definitely feels like an end of the end of an era because the series is about to undergo a transition yeah and it's not the first it's not and it's not the last transition it will undergo but the stories as you say take on a different tone and it moves into something else yeah and i i love what's coming i feel like that i would divide it into four phases if I think the whole of Morrison's run, the first phase ends here yeah. at the end of Morrican Dreams. But then I would say the second phase is is one story. Yeah. It's just one, it's basically volume three. I would and agree. And then the third phase goes all the way up until the very final story, um, which I would say is itself the fourth phase. I Yeah, I would agree as well. I'm glad we're on the same page because <laughs> I think that breaks it up perfectly. Yeah. and And of those phases, I look back on this period with, immense fondness because i i worked my way through the series almost backwards in a weird way like i think i've said before that my introduction to it was world war three the very last story and then i went back and collected stuff and again as i've said i love the bigger stuff that follows but at the same time i feel that this first phase is like the saturday morning cartoon phase where it is the best Saturday morning cartoon yes. you've ever seen and will ever will see. And I almost don't want it to end. I imagine there's a parallel universe, one of DC's many universes out there, <laughs> where this this version of the JLA are just fighting and saving the world week in, week out, and nothing ever changes. <laughs> and of course, this is this is the last issue with this version of the JLA. Because mm. as of the next issue, Green Arrow is a full-time member. Um, and then from there, the, the lineup will continue to change and, and grow and shrink at times. And we're going to get issues where you only get part of the team and some of the different combinations of characters that you get that Morrison puts together are very interesting there. But this is the last issue where the official JLA lineup is the Magnificent Seven. Mm. And you can see it beginning, like you know, bringing Green Arrow in. I think, I think it, you know, it could never, it could never stay that way. It it had to change, and it's what Grant Morrison did with Green Arrow, and you know, playing around with Zoriel and Tomorrow Woman. You start to get a flavour of how the league is going to evolve, and he does such a good job of of welcoming Connor in that you instantly. Well, certainly, you know, from from these two issues, I think it'd be very hard to to doubt that he had a place on the team. Like he he fits so well and and he conducts himself so well that he clearly deserves a place at the big table. Although, in fact, something I'd also forgotten that we're going to have to cover. We probably should save it for next week because um, we'll still have the current version next week. But um, the status of Wonder Woman is about to change drastically. Yes, I. Um... I'd be thinking about that in the back of my head. Um, I wonder if we could cover that with like a side note rather than. Do you think we need to do any additional reading around Wonder Woman, where she, where her character's going? Um, I don't know. I haven't 
read any of the issues involved, if I'm honest. I haven't read any of Wonder Woman's solo series from around that time. So I don't know where we'd go to read. Okay, um, okay, we'll tell you what. We'll do we, some research. We'll do some research and we'll talk about it because I ultimately it gets ultimately it's not a big change like because it it gets reversed in a rather short space of time but wonder woman is about to leave the series for a little while yeah she does come back she does come back but um more on that to come i feel i think we will definitely talk about it a little bit next week um as i say we are doing a one of our tangents next week but uh, it is relevant and uh, (laughs) does need to be done hey pj all our tangents are relevant are you know are relevant how dare you this, I think, is probably more so than any of the other tangents we've done. This one is vital to the ongoing story. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful, yes. Um, yeah, so, you know, this is this is the service we provide people. We're doing the work. We're putting the time in to, you know, really just make this, uh, make this the best, best damn podcast it, we can. It's some, it, next week we cover it. Next, I keep saying next week. I keep forgetting. <laughs> next episode... Um, we're covering something where if like me you the very first time you ever read rock of ages you went wait what did i miss something <laughs> this will help you out you're not alone <laughs> <laughs> awesome well i guess before we you know knowing what's to come and being very excited for it is there anything more we need to say at this point pj about you know what we've just experienced um other than i thoroughly enjoyed it and i'm genuinely excited about what's coming and i think i say that every time but yeah we're really getting into it now aren't we like this is we are we're deep in the paint um well yeah i guess with with that excitement still to come i should uh i should give a a massive shout out to gav mitchell for drawing our incredible cover artwork Uh, and to elliot red for composing and performing our wonderful theme tune justice and if you have enjoyed listening to pj or i kind of talking nonsense um both our social media handles are in the description, should you wish to give us a follow. Um, PJ, is there anything you'd like to shout about or, you know? Um, I will say, if, if you are listening to this and enjoying it and, and would like to talk JLA with us, please do reach out on the social media because I am always up for that discussion. Oh, yeah, yeah. You'll, you'll be like um, Dr. PJ. You know, if you've, got any, if you've got any JLA woes or any continuity uh, questions, I'm sure PJ is your man. Don't do that. Now people are going to write in with things I got wrong, which I've already found one out on my own. Thank you very much. Oh, really? Would you like to issue a a, a correction? Yeah, I said that Superman was split into red and blue by I thought it was Brainiac. It wasn't Brainiac. It was Toy Man. Really? Yep. Toy Man? Yep. Oh, can't we just say that Brainiac did it? Look, John, note it down. We've got to cover Superman red and blue at some point as well. Yes, yes. Yeah, and we'll finally... I swear you've explained it and I've forgotten it, but we'll finally put the issue of Electric Blue Superman versus just Superman Blue to light. <laughs> to bed? <laughs> to bed. We'll finally work that out. Um, well, I've got nothing else to shout about. Well, aren't you dull? I am very dull. PJ, would you like to do us the honours and sign us off in your... in your, in your uh, Oh, God, what's the word? Um, let's Inimitable? Just say, um, uh, yeah, that's the one. Inimitable fashion, PJ. Take us home. Yes. Inimitable sign-off. <laughs> <laughs>